This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing. Like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And I have uh, no idea what I'm doing here. I thought we were done reading the Harry Potter books again. (laughs) That's a really great point, Marcel. Mm -hmm. And I think we should talk about it in the sorting chat. What a good idea. Let's do that. So for those of you who... Maybe missed our very exciting, which please tell me, team edition. Mm-hmm. We're doing an eighth season, and this is it. Welcome, you're here. <laughs> it's already happened. Marcel, what's an appendix? An appendix is an organ that we don't really have a clear sense of what it does, but we think it's part of the immune system. But for whatever reason, it tends to get inflamed and then it needs to be removed. Kind of looks like a little finger. It does. It looks like a little hooky finger. Um, What else is an appendix? An appendix is also, in a book, it's where you put the stuff that you want to include, but that didn't really fit in the book itself. And so in, for example, a research project like a, a monograph or a dissertation, you might have an appendix at the end where you've got a bunch of really cool research stuff that you found that you think is worthy of inclusion, but that didn't, you know, fit with the bigger argument. So, <laughs> ergo, Hannah, what's this? This is the season of episodes that we couldn't quite figure out how to fit into the regular structure of our seasons, which mm-hmm. focus on a particular book, but that we still think are cool and wanted to talk about. So the episodes this season are going to take a sort of larger top-down approach of the Harry Potter series as a whole. Mm -hmm. And because it's big ideas that we think are cool, there's going to be probably a higher percentage of guest episodes. We love guest episodes. We love guest episodes, and we have an amazing document full of pitches that we have really wanted to sort of start dipping into. So we'll be doing that starting with our next episode and bringing in some really exciting people who are going to teach us things. God, I love to learn. The other thing I think is worth noting is that All the anxious questions we got about what's going to happen after season seven are now just going to be what's going to happen after you're done the appendix season. So don't stop worrying. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You can stop worrying. We'll take care of you. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. We got this. In what way do we got this, Marcel? Mommy and daddy are here, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm daddy. I'm mommy. (laughs) 
So what we're doing is throughout the appendix season, because we have so many wonderful guests coming on, that's going to free up a little bit of our time so that we can start testing out some new podcast pilots. So we're going to be releasing these sort of I keep wanting to say, like, test-run pilots as though that's not what a pilot is. (laughs) They're like promise rings for engagement rings, you know? (laughs) Yeah, they're promise ring episodes. We're making promise ring episodes. (laughs) And so we'll be releasing those to the Patreon and uh, asking our Patreon supporters for feedback and giving them uh, a little bit of an opportunity to help steer the direction of where we're going. So not to jump ahead to the credits, but if you want to participate in that process, it's not too late for you to join the Patreon. And finally have an opportunity to tell us what we what to do, which we <laughs> normally respond very badly to. Very, very poorly. <laughs> Almost like aggressively. <laughs> Coach knows. She has to be so gentle when she needs us to do something differently. <laughs> Fuck you. You're not my mom. Marcel's my mom. (laughs) (laughs) And so on. If we're going to be talking about the series as a whole, we should probably refresh ourselves on some key details in revision. Okay, Marcel. So remember when I said in our first episode on sentimentality that the Harry Potter books are often figured as a series that makes readers more compassionate and empathetic, and then we agreed to save that discussion for the appendix season? Mm-hmm. I do. I do remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we're here now, and that's what we're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't prepare. <laughs> <laughs> but first... I want to briefly summarize what we're talking about when we talk about sentimentality. I think that's a good idea. You are a little bit of an expert. You wrote the book on sentimentality. I wrote a book on sentimentality. The only one that I've read. Great. I'm an expert. (laughs) So sentimentality was an 18th century philosophical movement that pushed back against rationality which itself was a response to, you know, the dominance of the church. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, had, had its value, I guess. But sentimentality pushed back against rationality in favor of valuing heightened feeling and earnestness. Mm. Earnest mm-hmm. feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Earnestness, the thing that we are famously not good at. We're so bad. We're so bad at it. Okay. It was also a literary movement. And as a literary movement, sentimental novels had a set of recognizable tropes, like humanizing others through the terms of white civility by, like, depicting marginalized others as, like, loving children and having the capacity for suffering. So Mm -hmm. we talked about Uncle Tom's Cabin being a a real sort of major example of that. But we also see it in Little Women, where, like, as part of their moral education, the March girls give their... Christmas breakfast away to a sad, possibly German family. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Dying is important, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely important for somebody to die. (laughs) Yeah, the ideal sentimental heroine is always sort of the Beth of the family, right? Like the most sentimental heroine is the one who is too pure for this world and so must simply die. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that we can learn. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. What a bummer. And that learning is a real key part of the sentimental novel as well, because it shows sort of our protagonist maturing from being excessively impressible to being self-managed. We talked about impressible. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a term that I learned from scholar Kyla Schuller, who explains that impressibility was this 19th century pseudoscientific concept about the idea that some humans have a greater capacity to evolve or change than others. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because 19th century pseudosciences are deeply enmeshed in white supremacy, the people who have the greater capacity to evolve and change are white people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
impressibility, according to the sort of, you know, 19th century understanding, was linked to white people's capacity to grow ever more civilized. But it also posed this risk, which is like, if you're too easily impressed upon, mm-hmm. if you're too malleable, then you're potentially too vulnerable to outside influences, right? Right. You go you go and spend time with this poor German family. What if you accidentally become poor in German? That's why it's okay to give them your Christmas breakfast, but not to eat with them. Yeah. And don't invite them to live in your home or consider them to be community. Leave immediately afterwards. So sentimentalism emerged as a means of managing this excess impressibility, in part by attributing it to women as like <laughs> the feeling, the feeling sex, the sex that does feelings. If you need to make something manageable, you just assign it to women and then you can control it. Yeah. So that sense that feeling strongly was women's job and then, you know, alongside this this emerging sentimental novel led to this understanding of reading as a potentially morally improving activity for women. Mm. If they were reading the right kinds of books, of course, because we're impressible. So if we read good books... Yes. They make us good. Yes. But if we read bad books, they make us bad. Of course. And so all of this led us to have our conversation about whether or not literature can actually change people for the better or the worse, right? Yeah, yeah. Because if we actually dig down and are like, oh, no, this idea that reading makes you better or worse is rooted in this bonkers pseudoscience, Mm -hmm. then... We need to, like, apply some pressure to this idea that, like, reading fiction can be morally improving, because that is an idea that really continues to circulate, including through anti-racist reading lists and this sort of generally overdetermined idea of important books or Mm. books that can change the world. Okay, but Hannah, Mm -hmm. can they, though? Marcel, that's exactly what I want to talk about today. Oh, goody. Now that we've regrounded ourselves in sentimentality, let's expand our understanding a little more in transfiguration class. <gasps> so, Marcel, I want us to take a closer look at how the Harry Potter series in general has been positioned as improving. And to do that, I'm going to draw quite a bit here on a book by Beth Driscoll called The New Literary Middlebrow. Okay, hold on. Mm. This is an episode about sentimentality. In fact, this is the follow-up episode about sentimentality. What are you doing bringing in the middlebrow, Hannah? (laughs) I'm rude. So the middlebrow and the sentimental, not quite the same, but very closely related. So let me explain the middlebrow. Wait, wait, wait. You know what I think you should do first? What? Can you explain brows? Yeah, absolutely. So the concept of brows, so highbrow, middlebrow, lowbrow, mm-hmm. is a way of categorizing kinds of culture and the way that we engage with them. And its origins lie in another very popular historical pseudoscience, Is it phrenology? It's phrenology. Thank you, Marcel. I was like, what the fuck is it called, though? (laughs) Uh, It's the head measuring one. You know, the one that for a brief period of time, if you went into Urban Outfitters, you could get like a cool model of a human head with like all the parts, all the parts labeled. Yeah, guys, that's the most racist thing to to own. (laughs) I mean, not the most racist thing to own, but like, it's a real eugenicist nightmare. And if you've got one lying around your home as a cute little sort of tchotchke, you really, you should really get rid of it because phrenology is fucking grim. So phrenology was this idea that you could tell things about people by measuring their heads. Mm-hmm. Like, you've, you know, he's got a real criminal forehead. Mm hmm. And there there began to be these sort of head shapes that were associated with with classes. So highbrow was literally like rich people had like high foreheads 
and lowbrow is like poor people had like low sloping foreheads. Mm -hmm. To be clear, this is what people said, not the trend that was emerging in skull shapes. (laughs) No, because you can't make your skull shape a trend. (laughs) What? No, but (laughs) it's not how skulls work. No, I know. I know. It's just that the phrase. I'm just trying to clarify the phrasing. Marcel is modeling a skill you learn when you spend a lot of time teaching first year English, which is that people are sort of half paying attention and making notes and you're explaining to them a bad racist thing people used to think and they forget to take the note. This was bad, racist and wrong. And so then when they're writing their exam, they're just genuinely explaining to you how phrenology works. And you're like, oh, no. Because in the 18th century, a lot of very unintelligent people had low sloped foreheads. And you're like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Okay, so the middle brow sort of came along after the high brow and the low brow as concepts. And it was, you know, associated with with the middle classes, of mm-hmm. course, but it was really a particular way of of consuming culture that was really about the sort of aspirational middle class consuming mm. culture that they hoped would make them better. Gotcha. Consuming culture that, that they thought would be improving. And a lot of the time, the culture that sort of emerged for this like middle brow consumer was culture that had sort of a smattering of the appeal of the highbrow, but had been tempered a little bit to have some more populist appeal. So, for example, Broadway musicals are a middle-brow art form that emerged in response to the understanding that going to the opera or the ballet is a highbrow thing to do, but the middle classes didn't want to because they were bored. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Okay. And so we get Broadway musicals emerging, which are still, you know, they're not a populist form because it's expensive to go to a musical, right. right? It's still a sort of sign of, of prestige that you can afford to go and see live Mm -hmm. theater, but it's live theater that's been tempered to be entertaining. For for the many. It's like fun and you learn the songs and maybe you can sing along in the audience or whatever. And ideally, it also contains a moral or political lesson like Like Hamilton. Hamilton. Yeah, the ideal middle brow art form. Oh, boy. So middle brow is not the same as sentimental, but a lot of those texts that circulated in a middle brow way for middle brow readers were sentimental texts because they really fit that category of being, you know, entertaining, but also improving in some way, like book club friendly novels or prestige television dramas, you know, can have really sentimental content, but also can be circulated as middle brow, as in ideal for the middle brow consumer. The other really key thing about how middle brow texts circulate is that they're highly mediated because mm. this idea that they're going to make you better in some way relies on this external mediator who can say, hey, everybody, you should read this or you should watch this or you should go to this because it's go- it's the thing that's going to improve you. I mean, like Canada Reads, it's the the book that will shape the nation or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Canada Reads, which is a Canadian version of the sort of one book, one country reading challenges that exist all over the place, will often have a theme that's like the one book that will change the world. (laughs) And then, you know, when you watch the panelists talk about the books, they really are talking about like, what's a book that will be entertaining enough that lots of people will read it and it won't make them feel too Mm -hmm. bad, but it will also contain an important lesson. Mm hmm. Yeah, so we can really see the sort of blending of the sentimental and the middle brow at work in in these ideas, alongside things like literary festivals or best of lists or literary prizes are all sort of these these middle brow mediating forces. So Beth Driscoll also identifies a number of other characteristics of the middle brow, the new literary middle brow in particular. She says it's Middle class, reverential, commercial, feminized, emotional, recreational, and earnest. Hannah, I have a question. Okay. Can a book that doesn't start out middle brow become middle brow? Let me give you an example. 
Mm-hmm. In 2004, Oprah Winfrey added 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez to the Oprah's Book Club. I remember this because my extremely snobby neighbor was with me in a bookstore, saw the Oprah's Book Club sticker on the book and said, oh, Oprah's reading good books now. And I will never forget this <laughs> to the day that I die. <laughs> A lot of loaded stuff in there, speaking of class. So my question is, when Oprah Winfrey added 100 Years of Solitude to the book club, did the novel then cease to be avant-garde and become recreational? Or do the novel's qualities make it a candidate for middle-browing in a way that maybe some novels, no matter how much the famous book club leading reader enjoyed it. I don't know how I started that sentence, but like had qualities that no matter how much they enjoyed it wouldn't become popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a good question. So middle brownness is not an inherent quality of a text. It is about how it is circulated, how it is mediated, how it is consumed. So what we saw in that 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 season of Oprah's book club where she started taking classics and like rebranding them as Oprah's book club picks was the attempted middle browification mm -hmm. of a number of novels, some of which didn't take well to the process. The one I always think about that was like the big flop was Anna Karenina. Ooh. She really tried. And people were like, yes, I will buy it. And then they got like 10 pages in and were like, what? What the Russian nonsense is this? Do you know what? I read the whole thing and was like, that's the ending. The ending is, women are crazy? Are you fucking kidding me? My favorite thing about Anna Karenina is that there's a whole other plot about a Marxist farmer that just nobody ever talks about. <laughs> Everybody's like, ah, star-crossed lovers. And it's like, more importantly, this guy who's trying to figure out whether he can run a farm <laughs> in which he treats his laborers like humans. I don't even remember that. Maybe that didn't make it into the version I read. <laughs> it was I read the abridged version. <laughs> So novels like A Hundred Years of Solitude and Anna Karenina are not sentimental novels. I mean, and that's not a judgment call one way or the other. They're just That's just not the genre that they're operating in. They come out of very different international literary mm -hmm. traditions that have their own sort of particular origins and histories. And Oprah bringing them into her book club is an attempt to make them middle brow. I think it is, in general, easier to sell sentimental novels as mm -hmm. middle brow because the sentimental and the middle brow match up well in so many ways. And so it's not that sentimental things are inherently middle brow or middle brow things become sentimental. It's just that they are chocolate and peanut butter. Oh, that's different from what I was thinking, but okay. Yeah, sure. A tasty treat. <laughs> two great tastes that taste great yeah, together. Yeah, and for some people are a, a, a nightmare of an allergic reaction. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I love it. That's great. Okay, okay. So sentimentality, like I was saying, is, is generally a characteristic of the culture itself. So when I'm talking about a sentimental novel, I'm talking about a novel that has like sentimental tropes or characteristics to it. And that, again, is that like heightened attention to feeling. It's feminized. It's emotional. It's earnest. All things that Driscoll describes as being middle brow mm -hmm. as well, which is, again, why they why they align mm -hmm. so well. So the middle brow is a form of mediation that we can observe in cultural industries. Sentimentality is an aesthetic and generic quality. I see. Okay. That is a clear and helpful distinction. So we've already talked about the fact that the Harry Potter books contain sentimental tropes, mm -hmm. right? We've, we've seen those tropes at work. So unsurprisingly, it has also been a good candidate for middle brow recirculation. And that middle brow circulation is the subject of an entire case study in Driscoll's book. Oh, well, that's handy. So handy. Tell me about it. So what Driscoll is interested in, again, is the way that books are not inherently middle brow, but rather are mediated in a way that positions them as middle brow. So she's looking at the way that mediators, and in the case of Harry Potter, she's talking about educators and reviewers, the way they're mediating the Harry Potter books. She calls educators and reviewers 
professional valuers. Mm-hmm. That is people who have the cultural capital to declare something important or not important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I think it's worth pausing to note here that as professors who make a podcast, we are 100% professional valuers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Undeniably, that is what we are doing right now, is we are remediating this book series in a way that makes it interesting or amenable to a particular kind of reader yep. or listener. If I could unclench any part of my body right now, I would uh, be able to... Podcasts are a deeply middle brown medium. <gasps> oh, yeah. No, that's that's not surprising. No, my... <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's making me all clench up is the idea of making the Harry Potter series interesting anew. <laughs> I am uncomfortable with that role. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to focus really on the educational context here because it's what I think is really interesting. So in the educational context, Harry Potter is valued often for encouraging literacy, but When people say that a book encourages literacy, they're often quite vague about what they actually mean by that. Because literacy is a murky concept that we talk about a lot, but are unclear on how to measure. It ranges from the ability to read for comprehension to the encouragement of reading for pleasure and, of course, for ethical improvement. Mm. So teaching literacy, while sometimes it's about teaching to a standardized test so that you can prove that your students are functionally Mm -hmm. literate. Mm -hmm. Teaching literacy is often framed by educators as teaching students how to read the right kinds of things in the right kinds of ways, Mm -hmm. right? Getting students into reading for pleasure, into reading recreationally, which again was one of those middle brow understandings of reading. So literacy becomes not just, oh, I can read as much as I need to in order to do a job. Literacy becomes you are somebody who reads for pleasure, right? And we see this sort of understanding of literacy always lurking around studies that say, oh, people are reading fewer books than ever, right? Which isn't saying that literacy rates are dropping in a functional way. It's saying that people are spending their recreational time doing other things. And the implication is always that it's bad. Or that, like, if it includes reading, it's not real reading. Surfing the web is always a different category than reading right. a book. Tumblr is not the same as a book. Twitter, not the same as a book. Yeah, exactly. Because you need to be reading the right kinds of things, i.e. long form mm-hmm. fiction mm-hmm. in the right kinds of ways, i.e. for pleasure. Mm-hmm. So here's a quote from Driscoll. She writes, in media reports, Harry Potter is often credited with boosting literacy. However, the lack of a commonly accepted definition of literacy means that the term can be used vaguely, with claims about the novel's effects couched in the language of enchantment, end quote. So, educators often claim that Harry Potter boosts literacy because children find the books entertaining. Okay. Kids like them, so they read them. They read them voluntarily. Literacy boosted, did it. Checks all the boxes. So, As popular novels, the Harry Potter books aren't generally used to teach literacy in terms of, like, those standardized testable skills, right? It's the reading for pleasure thing. So, again, to quote Driscoll, she writes, Some reading for pleasure advocates act from the belief that reading per se is beneficial and that when reading is enjoyable, students will do more of it. Harry Potter texts are exemplary in this context as they are often credited with inspiring more reading, end quote. Okay. So, At the heart of that understanding is reading is beneficial per se. So in and of itself, if reading, not literacy, but reading for fun is beneficial in and of itself, why? I don't know. Some of the claims educators make is that it improves us by teaching us about ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? So like giving us a vocabulary to understand our internal lives or to talk about going through struggles. So they'll talk about, you know, Harry has struggles and it helps the students put language to experiences maybe they have also had. Right. Yes. It teaches us about others. So the books give us a sort of representation of difference. It very helpfully provides us with some analogies so that we could understand racism. <laughs> Absolutely. Without actually having to confront racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it teaches us about the world, social issues, politics, care for others, right? These are all things that I think as literary educators are probably familiar with as claims about things that reading does. Right, 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 right. So middle-brow reading approaches often 
claim essentially that that novels can be used by readers as these sort of like frameworks to think through our own experiences, particularly our own moral and ethical dilemmas. Mm-hmm. So that thus the act of reading becomes, and these are Driscoll's words, personally transformative. You're wincing. Here's what's happening inside my body right now. There's this part of me that's like, isn't it though? <laughs> There's this part yeah. of me who has been indoctrinated into this ideology who's like, but isn't it though? Not just indoctrinated. There's a part of you who is somebody who has loved books deeply and personally experienced the fact that they have changed you. Definitely. Sure, you sure, sure. You know it's true yeah. because it happened to you. <laughs> yeah, me. <laughs> and then there's another part of me that's screaming like, but that doesn't mean that reading is bad, which I know rationally is not what you are saying. And I know that it's not what Driscoll is saying. Beth Driscoll and I, two professors of literary history, <laughs> who think reading are is here bad. to tell you, stop <laughs> reading books. I know. Stop so it's it. like, I have a lot of need, I have a lot of knee jerking in happening right now that I'm trying really hard to control. And I suspect that probably there are lots of listeners who are also like knee jerking and trying to control that that impetus to hear where this goes, because I don't think any of us believe in our hearts that at the end of the segment, you, Hannah, are going to say, so surprise, reading actually makes everybody bad. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why I'm wincing instead of being like, but it is. (laughs) So on behalf of all of the clenched up listeners, Hannah, Please go on. Oh, sorry. I'm not going to really help you unclench, unfortunately. So (laughs) this premise that reading can be personally transformative, it it assumes that when we read, we identify with the characters and thus learn from their struggles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff bound up in that. And that belief in identification as one of the primary modes of reading in order to lead to personal transformation, in order to lead to improvement, is a big part of why sort of organizing around the diversification of books and authors has been much more powerful around children's writing than adult writing, because there is such a strong belief in the moral and ethical value of being able to identify with the protagonist in the book that you are reading. So that ends up drawing a a fairly straight line to like, well, we have to make sure that all children have protagonists that they can identify with in the books that they are reading. Also, maybe a similar call to have white kids reading books where the protagonist is not white so that they learn how to identify with non-white people. Absolutely. It becomes part of an anti-racist education, for sure. So what is fundamentally unclear in, in these sort of defenses of reading as personally transformative is whether identifying with the characters in books is something that we somehow innately do or as a middle-brow reading practice that we are taught. Oh my God, I can't wait for the next segment. (laughs) Yeah, by educators who think that's what good reading looks like. Yeah, definitely. It's also unclear if this imaginative identification with fictional characters actually has any impact on our behavior in the world. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the subtext of like believing that there's an inherent value in reading makes us more moral, more empathetic, more something good, self-aware. But that is really hard to test. I think we touched on this. I don't remember if it made it into the previous episode or not. But if you look at the literacy rates of... (laughs) Yeah, like look at the cultures where this particular kind of recreational reading is the most popular. Those are generally the most imperialist countries. Those are the countries that are like you there must be more like me against your will. Yes. And and often use reading as part of the process of imperial expansion. Indeed. Yeah. That like the sort of, you know, imperial re-education of your colonies involves insisting that the children there read the right kinds of books in the right kinds of ways. That's right. Yeah. So the sense that reading in general is good, but that reading certain books is better because certain books are better mm-hmm. for moral education. That's textbook middle brow culture. 
but it is also deeply sentimental since that sort of model of moral education is like a major trope of what happens in sentimental novels. So we get these characters maturing and growing up in a way that parallels the ideal development of the reader. So where the middle brow and sentimental overlap, we also see the assumed inherent goodness of reading overlapping as well. Of reading certain kinds of books in certain kinds of ways. You need to read them recreationally, right? As in you need to have sort of opted into it. It doesn't count if you're doing doing it in a university (laughs) class. And you need to read it earnestly, which is part of why I find watching Canada Reads unbearable. Absolutely unbearable, because they are also goddamn earnest. (laughs) (laughs) So, Marcel, I've talked around Harry Potter a lot, Mm -hmm. but um, I think we should probably get a little further into what exactly it is about Harry Potter that apparently makes us all better people. Okay, I think I'm ready. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's time to put our reading, huh? Our sentimental reading and our educational reading, huh? Huh? No? Hannah's shaking her head no. Uh, to the test in Owls, the segment where we apply our new critical lens to the whole goddamn series. Marcel, let's just start off with a conversation. So what's wrong with the idea that reading a particular book makes us better or worse? Okay, so the thing that's wrong about it is that there are countless ways that you can read and interpret a text. And so, mm-hmm. at its core, the idea that reading a book will, not can, but will make you better or worse, presumes falsely that everyone reads and interprets a single text in the same way. We know that's wrong. You can't study literature and think that that is true without being fundamentally at odds with the process of interpreting literature. Like, I mean, there's nothing in the world that convinces you that that is false more quickly than teaching a novel to a room full of students. That you're like, here you go. Here's this novel that I'm pretty sure we're all going to get the same thing out of. And then people start talking about what they read and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Sorry, did we read the same book? (laughs) What do you mean? I don't understand. Those two are gay? What? (laughs) They're just friends. Just gal pals. God. So part of this challenge is is the the idea that like plug book into person get particular output. Mm -hmm. It's we're like, okay, well that's not how that's not how people work. I wrote my whole dissertation about the fact that white supremacist women were writing early feminist fantasy fiction as a means of circulating white supremacist feminism. Mm -hmm. And so I I have to, I do believe that literature can and does circulate ideas. Undeniably. It must, right? But we know for sure that people learn things from books. We can test that one. Yeah. We're very good at testing (laughs) that one. (laughs) How deep does the rabbit hole go, Hannah? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. Fair, fair. I've made you question everything you believe. People can definitely learn things from books. Okay, okay, okay. You get an entire generation of people who read books that make, let's say, like some spurious claims about the history of the country that they're Mm -hmm. from. And those claims are reinforced again and again and again. And now everybody thinks that's true. Right, 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 right. Because they read it a bunch. We Okay, so coming back to Harry Potter, the entire generation of us who read Mm -hmm. and loved the books, like, we all 
continue to have, irrespective of our critical relationships to the books, we continue to have feelings attached to things like what house we're in or like... House is exactly the thing I was thinking of. Like, all of us who read Harry Potter have a set of shared vocabularies that have shared meanings. So we've got a whole generation of people for whom the word Ravenclaw is real Mm -hmm. and means a bunch of stuff. And that in part comes out of the books themselves because the books contain information. (laughs) What? Fact. They do. And part of that, of course, emerges from the reading communities that formed around the book and the way that we have collectively interacted. So not all of the meaning of Ravenclaw comes out of the books. A lot of the meaning comes out of communities of reading and our interactions with one another. And that makes sense because of how limited our understandings of the other houses are, right? Like, It is very difficult for me to imagine somebody in a vacuum reading the Harry Potter books and being like, yes, Slytherin, (laughs) that's me. (laughs) But so many people identify as Slytherin and with like really compelling and fun reasons. It's not because they believe in fascism. I mean, you've got that some like something really key right there, which is that we don't read in vacuums. Oh, we don't read in vacuums. We don't course. read in a vacuum. Like, sure, let's let's try to do a test where we figure out if somebody who is raised in total isolation handed the Harry Potter books, extracts a moral lesson from them. Literally untestable. You can't, there's no way of knowing if that's the case. And that ties into the the difficulty we have distinguishing between what did I get out of the books versus what did I get out of the community that emerged around the books? How much of this actually comes from the text in and of themselves and how much of it comes from the way that the texts circulate and the way that, you know, like I didn't have particularly strong feelings about Harry Potter before we started making Witch Please. (laughs) My feelings about these books are indivisible from the making of this podcast because it formed a reading community around me through which I have used the books to think through a number of things. We know we can do that with books. Yes, We can get together in a group and use a book as a tool through which... Touchstone. Yeah, through which to think through things and have conversations. But again, that is a very different thing from claiming that by reading the book some alchemy occurs in which now you are good. You have absorbed the lesson. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hannah, I have an idea for why I think we as a culture mm. remain so committed to this concept of read book, absorb goodness, mm-hmm. be good. So It comes largely out of what you were describing, but there was one thing in particular, which we'll get to, okay? But I think that because, at least in Canada, elementary and high school English curricula use novels to teach civility by surface-level examination of my least favorite term in the world, themes, Mm. I think this is the problem, is what I'm saying. So let me give you an example. Oh, my God. I mean, my go-to example is the fact that we learn about racism in Canada as a theme by reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. In Canada? Yeah. Why? I know. I know. Here is the corollary. (laughs) Okay. Mm. Good, Good use of corollary. Thank you. It's Number the Stars by Lois Lowry. Okay, so this is a novel that gets used all the time in elementary schools as part of units to teach children about the Holocaust. Okay, Mm -hmm. and I think it makes sense to bring in novels to teach children about really traumatic and scary events that happen because, you know, you don't want to scare children beyond the capacity to learn. And you also 
want to, oh no, oh no, oh no, I hear myself repeating just all of the rhetoric that, yeah, okay, never mind, you're not even a yep, coach, yep, let me start nope, again. Yep, yep, no, no, don't start again. I think it is absolutely fascinating the way that, like, as we begin to try to articulate, like, why is a novel a good teaching tool, right? We fall back into this, this is exactly the case study that Driscoll does of, like, educators are like, yeah, okay, no, but novels are really Novels are helpful. Like they're a they're they're a good they're a useful thing to learn with. Okay. All right. Like so now okay. starts. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Maybe they are. But okay, so so you in so in Transfiguration, Hannah, you talked about the reader needing to identify with the protagonist, right? And so this is the thing that really has me in a state about Number the Stars. Okay. So just for clarity, I haven't read it since I read it in elementary school, but here's what I remember. A blonde protagonist and her blonde family bravely hide a Jewish girl with dark hair from the Nazis during the Holocaust. I don't even remember what country, but Google tells me that it was Denmark, okay? The girl poses as the protagonist's sister. Here is what we did not learn. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what I did learn, but I can tell you for sure what I didn't. Okay. At no point did we learn to question the white non-Jewish protagonist representation of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. At no point did we learn that prioritizing a white non-Jewish perspective obscures the rampant anti-Semitism among white non-Jewish Europeans who, in fact, collaborated with the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And we definitely did not learn to question the decision to learn about the Holocaust from the perspective of a white non-Jewish protagonist written by a white non-Jewish writer rather than, for example, a novel written by a Jewish writer about a Jewish child. Yeah. So rather than engaging with a book like Number the Stars critically, we as children are told that it has a theme and that the theme is that prejudice is bad. And so if we read Number the Stars, we will learn that prejudice is bad. So then we won't, we will learn not to have prejudice, which is not what happened. I have done a lot of unlearning over the last 30 years, and a lot of that was prejudice. Yeah. So is it not what happened because the teacher taught the wrong book? Or is it not what happened because the teacher taught an appropriate book in the wrong way? Was there a right book that could have been taught in the right way that would have taught you that prejudice is bad? I don't think so. Oh, my God. Then what the fuck are we doing? in university-level English courses. Okay, well, here's what we're doing in university-level <laughs> English courses. At least this is what I think, this is what I think I'm doing. I think I'm teaching people not to read for content, but to read in order to understand how things are represented, right? Mm. So like to critically interrogate the function of the reading material as much as to critically interrogate the content of the material. Mm. So Number of the Stars, I think, would be a really interesting book to look at in universities for how it teaches the white or non-Jewish readers that this perspective is good and right, or how it prioritizes and centers the, like, white European perspective. Okay. So which, what basically what we're doing in this podcast with Harry Potter. Yes, exactly. So okay. what I'm saying is, I think we have solved the problem. <laughs> <sighs> well, thank goodness. No more problems here. Okay, Marcel. So so you pointed out that reading Number of the Stars in grade school did not... <laughs> single-handedly. Did, did not single-handedly help you unlearn all of the deep forms of prejudice that are, you know, profoundly embedded in our culture at every level. Mm -hmm. So what has unlearning looked like for you? And has it involved books? I mean, it's absolutely involved reading. I cannot deny that for me it has involved reading. But I don't think that that is the same thing as saying reading X books leads to this result, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. I've had a lot of really patient educators mm -hmm. in various different, like, university professors, workshop facilitators. Like, I have said some things in the past that keep me up at night because 
They were very naive and ignorant things to have believed. And I think that without having had some of those experiences with very patient educators of various sorts, I think I might still believe some of those things. But I think it's it's a combination of things, right? It's not... Yeah. It wasn't a book, is what I'm saying. And it sure as shit wasn't Harry Potter. Yeah. And what's what's really interesting is that it's still tied up in education there. And this is where I feel like it, it all gets so tricky, this question of, of how do we learn from or with or alongside books? Because... Books have also been, I mean, I wrote a whole, I wrote a whole book about this. Books have been really central to my own education, Mm -hmm. but that has been (laughs) in part what I have learned from books and in part what I have then had to unlearn from those books and the ways in which I read them and what I have learned about books and what I've had to unlearn about books. And, Mm -hmm. but, but reading was a one of a whole set of tools that I used along the way. One thing I find really interesting, two things that I find really interesting. One is our ongoing insistence that reading ought to or does have a inherently unique quality hmm. that is better at teaching us than any other medium. You know, that, that lots of kinds of culture and media gives us an opportunity to think about the world in different ways that we can then bring into conversations with our communities, into actions, into self-driven prompts to go learn more about something. Because it's those reactions, right? It's what we do with the consumption of, of media that actually pivots the process of learning or unlearning. And we can do that with movies, mm-hmm. documentaries, podcasts, TV shows. Albums. M- music, absolutely, mm-hmm. undeniably. Live theater, comedy, art, like there's a million forms of art that we can use to learn things about the world and to talk to each other about them. And our our preciousness about reading, which comes home to me again and again, every time I watch somebody who prefers audiobooks struggle to articulate what they have done to the book that they just listened to on audiobook. <laughs> yeah. That sense that it would be cheating to call it reading. That's every time I hesitate to say that I read something. Yeah, absolutely. Which is which is simultaneously ableist mm-hmm. default, right? Of like, yeah. well, it's not real reading. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, well, then so no blind person has ever really read anything. Like, right. no, of course, the second we apply pressure to that, we realize that's mm-hmm. just patently and obviously false. But it, it, you know, it also demonstrates the way that we... We continue to be like, ah, but reading by sitting Mm -hmm. alone with a book, looking at it for a long time, inherently precious in a way that no other activity is. So, you know, part of it is like, okay, why, why reading? And there's historical reasons and our episode on books touched on many of them. But it also just continues to be sort of a thing that I have a lot of personal question marks around. But the other thing and the really key thing for this podcast oh, no. is why Harry Potter? <laughs> why Harry Potter in particular? I can see Coach what? over in the corner just being like, when are you going to talk about Could the fucking you bitches novels? Please talk about Harry Potter <laughs> one, even one time. <laughs> you talked about fucking Lois Lowry for four hours. <laughs> you talked about 100 Years of Solitude. I bet she's got shit to say about the Merchant of Venice, too. We talked about the B-plot of Anna Karenina. (laughs) Um, Why Harry Potter? And I think this is particularly crucial to think about because of the completely unique role that Harry Potter plays in our culture, which is that not only are they the most popular books of all time by a landslide, for many people... They continue to be the only books they read. People read this series. They read it over and over and over again. So did Harry Potter teach them to love books? Or did Harry Potter teach them to love Harry Potter? Yes. (laughs) And what about it? Why this series? Tell me, Marcel. We know the things about this series that makes it the non-ideal singular series through which everybody can encounter the world. We've talked about every single one of those things 
throughout this podcast. And we've talked about the internet and the role that the internet played in popularizing it. Why these books? Many of my students who are Gen Z, Gen Z for you folks listening in America, have not read the Harry Potter books. They've seen some of the movies. But by and large, it is no longer the cultural touchstone that I can use to give examples for things, right? It's the only thing I had, and now I can't identify with my students about a single goddamn thing. (laughs) The reason why I bring this up is because I think that any claim that we might have wanted to make about the books themselves being inherently enjoyable or inherently like precious or or whatever, I don't know, whatever language we would want to use to say that they are special and there's something about the series. I think that that kind of, I think any such argument disintegrates when we look at the fact that they have not continued to be popular. Maybe it's because Gen Z slash Gen Z is just more trans-inclusive and hates J.K. Rowling. I don't know. That would be awesome. I would love that. (laughs) That sounds great. But somehow I suspect that that's not quite Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Marcella, you answered the question, why not Harry Potter? Oh, but I didn't answer answer why. Why Harry Potter? Okay. It's the same answer I give every time. Are you ready? Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Because I think that we as a generation were at a a historical moment where compulsory heterosexuality and heteronormativity was not making sense to us. And so many of us were understanding ourselves to be queer in various iterations of that meaning at the same time that this book series came out about a kid who didn't know why everybody hated him and then finds out it's actually just that he's special and belongs with a different community of people who are also special. I think that there's something in the overlap of like the emergent social, not acceptability, because I don't, I don't know that we're there yet, but the like the the visibility, the social legibility of queerness and Harry Potter that worked very elegantly as a as a metaphor with the magical community as a metaphor for queerness. I think that that I think that that's it. I like that a lot. That's all I got. <laughs> and you know what? JK Rowling, you get none of the credit for it. None. No. Cuz we did that. What I'm thinking about is the way that Again, this kind of reading, this kind of middle brow reading for improvement is something that so many educators said, oh, Harry Potter is particularly good at this. And so we'll use Harry Potter to teach people how to read. We'll use Harry Potter to teach how people how to enjoy books. And the way that people, we will teach people how to enjoy books is a mode of reading that does best with Harry Potter. So what we will teach people is how to read Harry Potter. We will teach people how to enjoy books that are like Harry Potter. We will teach people how to read in a way that most (laughs) thrives when applied to (laughs) Harry Potter. And that's the tricky thing, right? That, That when we go back to Driscoll's point about how teaching literacy is incredibly unclear, Mm -hmm. what do we mean when we talk about teaching literacy? The particular mode of teaching literacy as identification with a character, learning about the world and others through analogies, Mm -hmm. you know, finding a place for yourself imaginatively in the world that you're reading so that you can imagine yourself into the experiences you're reading about, all of this stuff that is framed as this kind of middle brow kind of reading. Mm -hmm. Harry Potter was not selected to be the book through which students learned these things by accident. It's a perfect fit. Right. It's a perfect fit because of that mode of teaching. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we had started off, if educators had started off with a totally different understanding of what it meant to teach literacy, if, for example, as historically many people did, it was like, oh, literacy is teaching the classics. hmm the end. Yeah. Then you teach people the classics and they read the classics and you teach them to read in a way that makes them understand that the classics are the good things to read. Mm-hmm. And so if we 
have a whole generation who has been taught that the ideal way to enjoy a book is modeled by the experience you have when reading Harry Potter in particular. Mm-hmm. Then we've got a generation of people who are going to enjoy reading Harry Potter in particular. I see the logic of that, that like using Harry Potter as the model encourages people to see Harry Potter as the model. So I can understand how that would then, like, for example, for for those folks still reading and rereading the series, right? Like those are the only books that they like. I get that. But it doesn't explain why they like them in the first place. I mean, that it, it comes back to that, like, what does it mean to like a book? How do you know if you've liked a book? You read a, how, you know, you start to, you pick up a new book, you get 10 pages in and you say, I'm enjoying this or I'm not enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Well, what about it? What is the experience of enjoyment? What does it mean to be enjoying that thing in that moment? Like what those, those are all things that we have an incredibly hard time articulating mm-hmm. as a whole. Like critics can often articulate it, but they're articulating it through a very particular cultural rubric. <laughs> they're not talking about what makes a book enjoyable. <laughs> and when I say, you know, we're taught to read Harry Potter, we're taught to enjoy Harry Potter. I mean, I mean, all of these things that we've that we've been unpacking for the past seven seasons, right? It's a hero's <laughs> journey. It's a chosen one narrative. It follows all of these structuralist expectations mm-hmm. around encounters with mean mommies. It treats a lot of big cultural issues as themes and yeah. analogies in a way that that simplifies them and makes them more, you know, easy to stomach, it, you know. And as we've also discussed, it has been paired with a very deliberately constructed reading community that the author herself participates in. And so it feels, or at least it felt, like a, a sort of fun way of being part of the Harry Potter world, even if you weren't. Yeah. And simultaneously, for all of the way that it has been treated in this really sort of overdetermined way of like, you know, here's we're going to learn how to read in a particular kind of way and we're going to do it through Harry Potter and here's what you're going to learn from Harry Potter. It has also proven to be a tremendously slippery and uncontrollable property because, yes, people adhered to it, but people have in droves rejected the author, rejected the market share value of Pottermore went down by like 40% last year. (laughs) Like people are rejecting Rowling. People are rejecting her attempt to control the reading community. People are taking control over the texts. People are. So, so even this book, even this book series, which has been culturally positioned in such a forceful way as a like, You'll read it, and through reading it, you will learn how to read right. You will learn how to be the kind of reader we want you to be. People have been like, all right, I'll read these books, and whoops, gay. <laughs> oops, made them gay. Oh, I wasn't gay before I started them, but now. It's so intriguing to me the way that, despite being a wild outlier, Harry Potter is a wild outlier. Mm-hmm. It's hard to make any big claims about books or reading based on Harry Potter because. Nothing else has ever been like Harry Potter, and possibly nothing else will ever be like Harry Potter. It may indeed be a just totally wild fluke Mm -hmm. of the early 2000s, (laughs) of just a thing that happened and can maybe never happen again. But even within that really, really specific cultural formation, the thing people have done with these books has been totally unpredictable, totally uncontrollable. If anybody could control what people did with her books, it would have been J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Because she has all the money and all the cultural power. And she has absolutely failed to control them. Well, turns out being a massive asshole isn't a way to make anybody do what you want. I really think that we need to talk more about Rowling herself and the way sort of she as a public persona shaped the reading of the books and the way that she has changed the reading of the books as a result of being 
outwardly and, and openly transphobic. And I kind of feel like maybe we should do an episode about the concept of the author. Hannah, I think that's a great idea. I think that uh, we can bring in some Michel Foucault and maybe a little bit of Roland Barthes. Ah, la mort d'auteur. Le, le mort d'auteur. C'est quoi un auteur? You're welcome for that, coach. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you want more of us, which you obviously do, we're on Twitter and Instagram at ohwitchplease and on Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where, in addition to getting all kinds of sweet perks, you can, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, follow along with our journey as we figure out what's next for the Witch Please team. Also, I already made a lot of references to my book in this episode. <laughs> you should read it. It's called A Sentimental Education. It's available in print and ebook and audiobook formats, all the formats. And whichever format you choose, I think it counts as reading. Hmm, what a good point, Hannah. Yes. Which Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca, which is expanding every day thanks to our awesome and newest team member, Baby, I mean Gabby, who has helped us launch a newsletter. You can also find transcripts, merch. Heck, just go check it out. It looks great. I love it. Oh, you know what I love the most? I love seeing all of the all of the guest bios. That's awesome. Oh, I'm so stoked. Okay, anyway, so special thanks as always to our Executive producer, Hannah Rehack, aka Coach. To our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel. Go home, get ahead, light speed internet. I don't want to talk about the way that it was. Thanks this week to AKO911, Zoe H, Anna Clarice, dollar sign I'm one exclamation mark, Jin three, and <laughs> thanks for that one. It was cathartic. We'll be back next episode to add to the appendices. But until then, later, witches. <laughs>